We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginners all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari Podcast. Discovering the Atari 400, Star Raiders, Caverns of Mars, and Minor 2049er. In this episode, we have a story about the first time we used this computer and played these games. The story has a great soundtrack underneath it by Tony Longworth, a song used by permission called Everything Changes, but it all stays the same. We also have a history and discussion about these games. So now, on to the episode. Kenny Brown and the Atari 400. Part 1. Dungeons and Dragons. The concept of making and having friends has always been interesting to me. Having a twin brother who is also interested in about 99% of the same things means that in reality I've never really felt the pressure to have to make friends, which is both good and bad I suppose. In some ways, it's like a safety net, but in other ways, it rendered me a bit socially inept when it comes to situations where I cannot rely on my brother as my default friend. I've always been keenly aware of people who enter and leave my life. Most of the time, neither event occurs in dramatic fashion, but instead is woven into the fabric of everyday occurrences. In fact, far from the jump cut or massive explosion one might expect, people kind of just fade in and out of life, like a temporarily challenged photo in Marty McFly's back pocket. Sometimes they return, and sometimes they don't. When Kenny Brown moved to Manhattan Beach in 1980 from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and started fifth grade in my class with Mrs. Nash, 
I had already lost several friends. People like Lance and Benji and Annie and Mike and Greg and Carrie and others had simply disappeared from our school and neighborhood, moving away to places and schools unknown. The blow of these losses was softened, of course, because of the aforementioned twin brother situation, but in some ways it made me more acutely aware of the appearances and disappearances. I felt like I observed the comings and goings from afar, their effect muted but also cataloged. To be honest, when Kenny Brown arrived in fifth grade, I did not like him at all. I was not ready to make any new friends. The Dodgers were playing to win the National League West that year, and Kenny could do nothing but root for the Phillies, their rival in the playoffs. We were tracking the games in class, and our teacher, the wonderful Mrs. Nash, welcomed Kenny by letting him tell us all about the Phillies and why he loved them so much. I knew nothing about Philadelphia at the time except that there was a famous cracked bell there. I had no idea it was a setting for the Rocky movies, and this was long before my David Brenner comedy album phase, him being a native of Philadelphia. That year, the Phillies thwarted L.A. every chance they got. The Dodgers failed to win anything while the Phillies advanced and ultimately won the World Series. I was a huge Dodgers fan then, and I knew every name of every Dodger player and their place in the lineup, their batting average, their ERA, and everything in between. Seeing the Dodgers go down so hard was one thing, but having a guy in class who actively danced on their grave was quite another. So for most of the fall in 1980, I simply could not stand to be around Kenny Brown and his big, smiling, Phillies-loving face. However, one day near the beginning of winter break, Kenny brought a game to school and asked Miss Nash if he could play it with the other kids in class when we had free time. Since Mrs. Nash just so happened to be the best teacher ever, she happily agreed and Kenny went looking for players. Kenny came by my desk and asked if I'd like to play the game. There was no way I would pass up a chance to play a game in class. No teacher had ever let us play anything more than Scrabble Jr., and this game looked nothing like that at all. The cover of the box featured an elaborately designed scaly beast breathing fire at a warrior deflecting it with a shield. The title on the box read, Dungeons & Dragons, a fantasy adventure game. I'd never seen anything like it before. Along with myself, Kenny enlisted Barney Hedges to play, and we started a game during recess that very day. This game, Dungeons and Dragons, had no board of any kind, just a couple of rule books and a set of six geometrically shaped dice. Kenny told us that he would be Dungeon Master, which meant he would not play the game, but rather guide us through it. Barney and I both created fighter characters, which took most of the free time that day, so we did not get to actually playing the game until the next day. That night, I found myself wondering what the game was all about. The fantasy image on the cover excited and scared me at the same time. The only real artwork I'd been exposed to by that time were the stained glass windows in our Catholic church and the Ralph McQuarrie Star Wars paintings from my top Star Wars trading cards. This looked like a combination of both, a scary-looking magic dragon facing off against a pair of cloaked figures, one of which seemed to be shooting magic from their very hands. Was this game demonic? Was it against my religion? The concept of demons scared me very much at the time. My sisters told us stories about backwards masked messages on records placed there directly by the devil himself. My dad walked around the house talking about the demonic possession he had read about in books. At the same time, after multiple unexplainable incidents, I firmly believed our house was haunted. When I slept over at my friend Wesley's house, he told us that the biggest band in the world at the time, KISS, was actually named Knights in Satan's Service, which scared me even more. What was I getting myself into? 
Still, the idea of going on a grand adventure as a human fighter appealed to me more than anything else. Next day, we were back at it in full force. As Dungeon Master, Kenny led Barney and I through a quest in a set of caves. In our first session, we fought rats and molds, discovered copper, silver, electrum, and even gold pieces, then mapped out several rooms inside the cave before we were forced to stop playing and get to our fifth grade schoolwork. That same day, we played Dungeons and Dragons at recess and during our free time in the afternoon. At one point, Barney and I were attacked by a set of skeletons as soon as we entered a room that contained a treasure chest. Barney and I tried to fight them off, but they were too strong and we ran away from them. By the end of the day, I was totally hooked. I needed to find a way, get those skeletons, and get to that treasure chest. When I went home that night, it occurred to me that there was nothing else I wanted to do but play D&D. The Dodgers didn't matter to me, reading Choose Your Own Adventure books didn't matter to me, reading Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators didn't matter to me. All I wanted to do was figure out how to defeat those skeletons. That night, I had trouble sleeping, and in the middle of the night, I had a brainstorm. I woke up and realized that we needed cover. Cover was a concept my dad implored in us as we watched war movies. He was adamant about it. He wanted us to know that if we ever had to fight in a war, we needed to find cover, which was basically a place to hide. Still, almost 40 years after his brother was killed in World War II, he was affected by it. His brother was shot by a German sniper while trying to clear some barbed wire. He was in the open for just a short time, but it was enough for the sniper to kill him. My dad was sure if his brother had found cover, he would not have died. The next day while playing, I asked Kenny if we could return to town and go to a store to spend some of our treasure we had found previously. He agreed. I asked Kenny to read off the list of items in the store, and he recited a list from the Dungeons & Dragons guide. One of the items he mentioned was a cart. Barney and I bought the cart, and we pushed it through the dungeon to the room where the skeletons had attacked us previously. This time, instead of running into the room, we hid behind the cart and fought skeletons with bows and arrows. Kenny seemed partially amused and partially annoyed by this strategy, but he did not dissuade us from it. As Dungeon Master, he calculated a mystery factor that he subtracted from our armor class, a number that represented how hard it was for an enemy to hit your body with weapons based on the armor you were wearing. In those days, the higher the armor class, the worse your armor in D&D. It's now the opposite. The plan worked. We defeated the skeletons and collected a pile of gold pieces. We also gained enough experience points to each gain a level. For gaining that level, we got more hit points, which made our characters a little harder to defeat. Gaining a level was, in a word, intoxicating. As I tried to play with Kenny as much as possible, I forgot all about the Dodgers and the Phillies, and our friendship was built on the shoulders of D&D, which led to other common interests like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Steve Martin's Let's Get Small. We continued playing D&D on and off for the better part of the year. When Barney quit playing, I believe his mom made him stop because of the demons. We found other players in my brother and Scott Johnson. When summer rolled around at the end of fifth grade, we stopped and promised to restart in the fall. Part 2, The 400. Growing up, we lived half a block from our elementary school penny camp. This meant that for all intents and purposes, it took us nearly zero time to walk home. 
While the benefit of this was obvious, it took five minutes to walk to and from school. The main detriment was obscured. We were nearly always at home and hardly ever over at our friends' houses after school. For six years, we were able to get right home and start watching afternoon TV immediately, and this became our habit. And when we began attending Foster Bay Junior High, which is about a mile's walk from our house, my brother and I walked directly home after school. I suppose we were just trying to replicate the feeling of freedom we had at elementary school, of being able to get home quickly, then sprawled on the couch, decompress from school, and watch cartoons, the Brady Bunch, and maybe a Dodger game before eating dinner and doing homework. This quick walk only accelerated after Christmas 1981 when we got our Atari 2600. Jeff and I would talk about 2600 games with friends as we walked home. But as guys like Brandon and Jeff Shibata and Wesley peeled off to head to their own houses, we would quicken our pace to get home to get to our beloved Atari machine hooked up to the living room TV. However, by 7th grade this changed. As our little friend group of nerds and metal punk fans grew, I felt less and less the need to get home quickly and more of a need to hang out with friends whenever possible. One of the first guys to spend a lot of time with after school in those days was Kenny Brown, and it was at his house when I met my future. By seventh grade, Kenny was a classic 80s latchkey kid. He lived with his divorced mom in an apartment near school and spent a few hours every day home alone. One of those days in seventh grade in 1982, Kenny invited us to his house instead of walking home and thus began a sequence of events that changed my life. Since Kenny lived alone with his mom, we essentially had the place to ourselves. If we weren't such geeks, I'm sure we could have found much more nefarious ways to spend a few unsupervised hours alone in the early 80s, but all we wanted to do was play games games. I suppose we could have started to play D&D again, but it never happened. Instead, we focused our attention around something that was even more fascinating than half-orcs, magic missiles, and blade barriers. Kenny's Atari 400 computer. It was one of those glorious Atari machines Jeff and I had first seen at HW Computers in the summer before 6th grade. I still kept the HW Computer catalog by my bedside, paging through it with great frequency and anticipation of my future goal of being a computer owner. I'm not sure how Kenny got his 400, but since he was a latchkey kid who lived with his mom, I always figured the computer served as a replacement for something. No matter why he had it, Kenny was fiercely proud of his computer. However, unlike some other kids I knew who had home computers, he was not overly protective of it, so he let Jeff and I use it as much as we wanted. The first game Kenny showed us on his 400 was Star Raiders. I could not believe that this amazing game could be played on a home computer. It was a tactical yet action-oriented space game against the Zylon invaders. The first person 3D space battles were like playing the movie Star Wars on a TV screen. Star Raiders was one of the first games for the Atari 8-bit computer line and was so amazing in its time that Atari sold tens of thousands of 8-bit computers on the strength of it alone. Another great game Kenny let us play was Caverns of Mars, a smooth-scrolling vertical space shooter. Mars was another mind-blowing game unlike any I'd ever seen on a computer or home video game system. It even rivaled anything in the arcades at the time. The graphics were so crisp and the explosions were so satisfying that the game was difficult to stop playing. The two hours of our first visit to Kenny's went very quickly, and Jeff and I could not wait to return. The chance came a couple weeks later when Kenny told us he had bought a brand new game that was like a cross between Donkey Kong and Pac-Man. Since those games were kings of the arcade at the time, Jeff and I were anxious to see what the game might be. It was difficult to imagine just what a cross between Donkey Kong and Pac-Man might look like, but the day at school moved very slowly as we waited for 3 o'clock on our chance to play on Kenny Brown's Atari 400. When we got to Kenny's house after school, he pulled out the new game and a Wico joystick and started playing. It was named Minor 2049er by Big 5 Software, and it became our obsession for months to come. In the game, you played a miner who had to run, jump, and transport 
his way through each level. The game looked a bit like Donkey Kong in that it was a platformer, but the added element was the need to walk over every platform to pick up the mine ore, which gave it the added Pac-Man element. The most amazing thing about the game was that it had 10 very different, very difficult, full-color levels, each with different elements and features, ladders, transformers, elevators, cannons. At a time when even the best arcade games had just one level, Pac-Man, or maybe four, Donkey Kong, 10 levels made Minor 2049er seem like the best, most elaborate arcade game ever made. Kenny had already mastered most of the game, but it took Jeff and I much longer to get through it, simply because we had to wait for stolen minutes at Kenny's house to play. Jeff and I obsessed over this game for months, trading ideas on how to defeat each level and try to match Kenny's prowess. There was a time with Minor 2049er when I thought it was the best game ever made and the best game that would ever be made. This did not last very long though, as Kenny had another surprise up his sleeve that would change my view of home computers and specifically the Atari 400 forever. One afternoon at Kenny's house, Jeff and I expected to play Minor 2049er, Star Raiders, Cameras of Mars, but Kenny instead took out a computer magazine named Antic and started to read it. At first, Jeff and I had no idea what he was doing. However, after a couple of minutes, Kenny showed us what he was looking at. Antic was a magazine dedicated to Atari like our beloved electronic games was, to video games. However, besides ads and news and new products, Antic had a section of the magazine dedicated to program listings, and in particular, game program listings. What this meant was that if you spent time to type in the program listing and was able to do it perfectly, at the end of the process, you would have a new game to play. This was amazing. We could program actual games on the Atari 400. Sure, the code came directly from the pages of a magazine, but so what? Kenny plugged in the basic cartridge into his 400 and sat down and started typing. Even though Jeff and I had some experience programming on the Apple IIe, Kenny was much better at typing than us, and he took full control of the machine. Jeff read out loud the lines of code to Kenny, and he transcribed them to the 400. It was a painstaking process, but after about two hours, the listing was complete. Kenny typed run, and we marveled at what was on the screen. The game was not very elaborate. It was a simple maze chase game called something like Money Bags, but the time and energy we put into making it come to life made it worth much more than the end result. At one point, one of us thought that the scoring of the game was not quite correct. Kenny stopped the game and listed the code on the screen. He used the arrow keys to edit a line of code that controlled the score, and he doubled his value. Then he ran the game again, and we racked up amazing scores. This was a light bulb switching moment for me. All of a sudden, I realized that not only could we use basic language to play other people's games, but if we had ideas on how to make them better, we could easily make them a reality. A whole world opened up for me at that moment, and I knew someday, someway, somehow, I would become a computer game programmer. The time we spent at Kenny's house after school felt like how I imagined the freedom of adulthood might feel. There was no adult supervision, yet we spent our time not trying to watch the squiggly lines of the Z Channel R-rated movies or stealing alcohol from the kitchen, but instead completely engrossed in playing and exploring Kenny's Atari 400. I look back on it now and realize these were my first adult choices. Being an adult is not just having the freedom to do whatever you want, but instead it's the freedom to do whatever you want and choosing to do things that will make you a better person. At least that's how I look at it anyway. I don't recall why we stopped going to Kenny's house to use this 400. Maybe it was because we got an Atari 800 of our own, or maybe it was something else entirely. I think I recall Kenny's mom told him no one could come over to his house when she was not around anymore. Maybe there was a good reason for it. I don't know what Kenny did when we were not around, nor am I sure what Kenny did with his other friends or when he was alone. I do know that the time at Kenny's house, with me thinking he was one of my best friends, was fleeting, and it was too soon before those days were long gone. Junior high is a cruel time of life, and the things that seem solid and permanent it were anything but.
Part 3. After junior high school in 1984, Kenny Brown made a sudden change. I'm not sure if it was always in him or something he suddenly just decided to do. Within the first year of high school, he tried to forge a brand new persona for himself. He shed most of his geek friends like Jeff and I and went out for the football team. Since Kenny was about 6'2 and weighed 150 pounds, he was built for football. He made the team within a year and completely reinvented himself. Kenny also left most of his geek stuff behind, at least in public, and started hanging out with a new group of people and never looked back. I recall he even caught the winning touchdown pass of one of the rare games in which our team was victorious. Even though we never hung out any longer, I still secretly rooted for my old friend on the football field and within the halls of Maricosta High School. Still, it was not easy losing my friend, especially in the confusion of high school. The good news, like I said before, that Jeff and I being twins always had each other to fall back on. In time, we forged our own inroads in the social fabric of high school. Still, I always wish we could have found a way to remain friends with Kenny Brown. In the years after high school, I'm embarrassed to admit that I sort of forgot he even existed, or at the very least put him out of my mind. I suppose as far as I was concerned, Kenny Brown had forgotten us, and we in turn returned the service. The D&D and the Atari 400 became merely shadows of time in the past when kids were friends with each other for no better reason than just because we could be. However, a few years into college, I came back to my parents' house to find a note on the kitchen table attached to a package. I opened the package first and found a couple of Atari ST games from Epics inside, including their version of Battleship. I was baffled about where they had come from. I picked up a note written by my sister. It said that Kenny Brown had stopped by and left them for Jeff and I. I was astounded. I'd not thought about Kenny Brown for years, yet he had managed to not only stop by our house, but leave some gifts as well. I called a couple people to see if they knew about Kenny being in town or what he was doing but my inquiries went nowhere. As it turned out, it was nearly the last time I ever heard from Kenny Brown. Still not sure what Kenny meant by leaving us these games, or if he really meant anything at all. However, it's not the act that is important. It's the way that it was received. In my mind, the gesture was Kenny Brown telling us that indeed he had not forgotten that we were once friends and once shared the wonder of the home computer together. In turn, since that day, I've never forgotten Kenny Brown, my introduction to D&D, or the time we spent together in his apartment exploring the wonders of the Atari 400. That was almost 40 years ago. People fade in and out of our lives. This is the truth that cannot be denied. You can hate them for it, grieve them, or you can appreciate them for the time you get to spend with them while they're with you. In that sense, I appreciate every minute I spent with my friend Kenny Brown. Kenny might have grown up and out of the time we had together, but I still consider him a good friend. And with Kenny, the seeds of my love for Atari computers were really sown. We approached his Atari 400 with pure childlike joy, and I'm happy for every minute I got to spend with him and my brother. They were days when nothing else mattered but typing run, grabbing a joystick, and playing a game we had just coded from the glossy pages of Attic Magazine into Atari Basic and displayed on a CRT running at 60 frames per second, directly in the vertical blank. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Have you ever wondered why Yar wanted revenge? How one becomes a frogger exactly? Why those robots in Berserk went, well, Berserk? Me too. On Atari Bytes, we do more than review the games. We dig deep to find the story of the characters within the games. If we know the actual story, we tell you that. If we don't know the story, which is more often the case, we make one up. Hopefully, to your amusement. 
and occasionally to provoke a thought or two. So if this sounds interesting to you, I hope you'll check out Atari Bytes. B-Y-T-E-S. Wherever fine podcasts are sold for absolutely no money at all. Thanks. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Car by Car podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that, and for free, just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey Jeff, so that story was about the first time we played Dungeons and Dragons, or I did, and then and then the first time we actually touched an Atari 400 computer and did stuff with it, which was that in is correct. 1982 or 19 or early 1983. I can't remember it was which exactly. Two most likely, and we had had a couple of years before that where we had played with Eric Barth on his Apple II and Apple IIe, it's Apple II Plus and Apple IIe, right. Um, what we had programmed in BASIC. And actually, at that point in time at school, we were even writing BASIC programs in Apple BASIC just without a computer. And also, we found books at the library where we could that had Atari BASIC stuff in it. We're learning about Atari computers at the same time. Because we had a heart set on an Atari computer. Oh, yeah. Because of, because Atari. Because Atari. Because of the Atari vertical blank. Because of the vertical blank. So it was the first time, like Dungeons and Dragons was was pretty amazing because we'd been doing Choose Your Own Adventure books before that. We had started with Encyclopedia Brown, right? That's interactive fiction. It was awesome. And you were, were you could you could try to figure out what the mystery was, and also the the Donald J. Sobel's Two Minute Mysteries, which were you know in paperback form, which are very similar. And then came in about third grade. I don't know seventy eight choose your own adventure books which we devoured completely right but it wasn't until we actually got to uh dungeons and dragons that it kind of it became like like stories turned stories into games and there was so much more you could do with it i think you know it was kind of hard because it kind of felt demonic at the time <laughs> it did a little i mean we were in a catechism class and stuff like that it was it did feel a little bit i mean let's be honest it was talking about things that made me uncomfortable a little bit as a kid that we were taught would were bad, right? But they weren't celebrating it. Like it wasn't, so it just was, that was it maybe, and having a, a horde think, of people tell me it was evil, but I still wanted to play, man. I didn't stop. I think playing. the problem with it is that it sort of celebrated the dark side of those religious teachings, you but could didn't necessarily celebrate the light side of those yes. religious teachings. And that, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the issues. I, I think people just saw the dark side of it. Mom fully supported us buying books from the Scholastic Book Club. It's like if it was one thing in the middle of the year that we could get that wasn't Christmas or a birthday, it was that package of books from the Scholastic Book Club. Oh, so yeah. Because they were like came, $1.95 or something. Yeah. Two, well, along two, two, came two. great books and uh, the Children's Adventures were in there and there were other things, game books and stuff. So it really helped. So I think that's a... And then it led all to Dozen Dragons just led the Atari 400. 
Which yeah, so so yeah, we went from Dungeons Dragons with Kenny, and he was our friend. And then um, I don't I don't remember exactly what participated us coming over to his house because we would walk straight home in sixth grade. But sometime in seventh grade, he invited us over. It might have been because he got the four hundred. He might have got the four hundred for school. Got four hundred for his birthday um, for Christmas or something that year. And then you we you had the Electronic Games magazine, and he said, and he said, why don't you come over to Atari computer? And we're like. We will be there now, <laughs> and, and so we could call mom from his house, and she let us go. And I think she even picked us up afterwards too. Like we didn't. Have oh yeah, I think she did too. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, the first I remember he put in Star Raiders, which was pretty amazing, and um, we have a little bit of history of Star Raiders here. So why don't we read that from my history that I wrote for Gama Sutra? I'm going to go to the history of Star Raiders. Atari wanted to separate the computer line from the video games so it could be seen as a serious contender in the market. But they made one huge and glaring mistake that would pretty much ruin that idea before it ever got off the ground. And the name of that mistake was Star, Star Raiders. Raiders. Programmed by Doug Neubauer, the game was released in March of 1980. Neubauer was hired by Atari in 1979 as a chip design engineer, but worked on Star Raiders on the side, developing on a wire-wrapped 8-bit prototype before the production models were ready. Star Raiders was designed as a 3D version of a game that was very popular on college campuses and in computer rooms in the 1970s. This is a quote from Doug Neubauer. Star Raiders was to be a 3D version of the Star Trek game played on the mainframe computers at the time. The Star Trek game was all text and not played in real time, but it had the idea of ship damage and sector scanners and charts. Again, that's Doug Neubauer. The 3D visuals and gameplay of Star Raiders was like nothing that had ever come before in a computer game. Neubauer's fellow employees at Atari were blown away by the finished product. And this is Michael S. Tomzak said this. The employees in the company went bonkers over the game, which was the first true-to-life three-dimensional video game. The visual effects were dazzling, especially when the stars whizzed by when you warped, or when the four kinds of enemy ships came zooming out of nowhere, either behind or in front of you. And again, that was Michael S. Tomzak. Upon release, Star Raiders became the first killer app of computer gaming. It was the first computer game that could be called a machine seller. Doug Neubauer again. It's pretty amazing the way the game caught on. I think it was the first game to combine action with a strategy screen, and luckily the concept worked out well. Even the mainstream press caught on to the fury of the game. And this is from the Washington Post. Harry Allen, Washington Post, September 2nd, 1980. The name of the game is Star Raiders. It's the best possible combination of a shooting gallery and a planetarium. It is the reason I was up till 1 a.m. the night before. It cost about $530 to own one, assuming you've already got a color TV. And I believe that's an Atari 400 plus the game was $530. That is awesome, man. Um, Henry Allen, Washington Post, September 2nd, 1980. Of, of course, the success of Star Raiders had a serious downside for the Atari Home Computer Division. It solidified the industry misconception that the 400 and 800 were not serious computers. This is Michael S. Tomzak again from The Home Computer Wars by Michael S. Tomzak. So that's the that's the book about Commodore, right? The Home Computer Wars? Yes, so. Yeah, it has a lot about Commodore. I didn't know it mentioned Atari, but it looks like it does. 
yeah I anyway I, <clears throat> I know i think i pulled these quotes out of there because i was digging pretty far down this is him again who would buy a serious computer from the world's most successful video game and arcade company many customers thought the atari 400 and 800 were more expensive versions of the atari 2600 video game machine some people even doubted whether the atari 400 and 800 were real computers and that is part of the misconception because you know jeff they shouldn't have been they should have been the next video game system but we've been over that many many times yeah but i think that there are so many people who um would argue that the 400 was the only reason why they had computers like they didn't really like they they had a computer they didn't really like any of the other ones out there they didn't like the trs 80 they didn't really like the vic 20 and the 400 at its price was like this is why i have a computer so they needed a computer at that point because there was a missing part of the industry like there's a whole missing segment at a 400 filled and the 800 kind of filled but was really competing with the apple IIe but it would have been better if it was a $300 video game system first with an add-on keyboard. Yeah, I think so too. Or even a $400 video game system. I loved playing Star Raiders. Like I I think picking up a joystick and just trying to, I know there was, there was a game, I think there's a game on the Intellivision that oh, was yeah. close as well. It was, like, was um, it, Space um, Attack. Yeah, and and it it kind of it was kind of similar too, but there was nothing like. I mean, it couldn't match Star Raiders. It wasn't they on were a three. It wasn't three D. It was on a two D plane. Yeah, it was super amazing. Um, I know we had the cartridge that came with our Atari hundred. We didn't have the directions or anything. I think we had to look all that up ourselves or find it somewhere. Uh, oh, we wait. We must have. It must have had the directions, though. Must have had the. I think the, we, I think um, uh, we had the directions because we knew how to play, and we be and we. One of the things that came with that was a few cartridges, and one of the cartridges was Star Raiders. And one of the things he purchased right when he got it, the person we bought the computer from, was Star Raiders cartridges. So we had those in Star. Raiders. Well, I'm I'm sure, and I'm sure Elwood's the type of guy who was my dad's friend at work. My dad, who he bought the computer from, that would have Star Raiders. He was right. an engineer. Like that was the idea. He probably bought the 800 plus star raiders just like all these guys did in this article here so i always thought star raiders was awesome and it really was cool it did i i remember when star raiders when was it star raiders 2 no it was the last starfighter came out which was actually star raiders 2 but not the then no i'm sorry sorry the last starfighter was made it became star raiders 2 but there's actually a real star raiders 2 right right that's out there too different game yeah i will find i've never tried it for some reason i know it's up on various sites i will find it okay cool so let's go on so the next game that kenny had us play uh was caverns of mars and caverns of mars was this this is i mean you can go play it right now it's really bitching vertical scrolling game where you kind of go down into a cave and i think you had to set a bomb at the bottom and then get the hell out get the hell out and there are multiple um, caves too it just it just was so good so smooth scrolling it looked better than almost any arcade game at the time i mean vertical scrolling there weren't a lot of those at the time so. no but it was part of apx and uh, you know you can't really tell the story of caverns of mars without telling a little bit of the story of the atari program exchange so i'll start with that and i'll read you my little history of apx and caverns of mars is that okay yeah sure let's just do it okay here it goes from my article that was on Gama Sutra in like, I don't know, 2008 or 2009. I can't remember what it was. One unique idea that came out of Atari at this time, this is uh, 1981, 
To further support the 8-bit platform with software was the APX, the Atari Program Exchange. APX was the brainchild of Dale Yoakum. The idea was to take submissions of software from, from the Atari user community and market the best ones right back to the users. This is Chris Crawford from an interview he did with us. Uh, that we haven't yes. published yet because it was done about, I don't know, almost 15 years ago. But we, the, I do plan to actually put it in the podcast at some point. He said this, the guy who cooked up the idea, Dale Yoakum, was trying to explain to management that there are a lot of people out there that like to write programs. And if we can publish these programs for them, it's a win-win. The management was not yet interested in it. He put together a business plan for it and said, look, we only need a little bit of money to get this thing off the ground and it can be self-sufficient and might even make some money. They very grudgingly agreed to let him do it. And so he did. And very quickly, he made it into a monster success. It was a major profit center for Atari. They rewarded Dale for his initiative by bringing in another guy to be Dale's boss. So Dale and Disgust quit about a year later. That's Chris Crawford. Sounds like Atari. It does. <laughs> My article continues. It's interesting to note that APX was not just a resource for Atari customers, but many of Atari's internal VCS development staff wrote games that were released as APX titles. Not just VCS, but also um, the computer staff too, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Lemonade Stand, Mugwump, and Preschool Games, Reversi, Space Track, and Dice Poker were written by Bob Polero. Avalanche and Chinese Puzzle were written by Dennis Goebel. Centurion, Castle, Alien Egg, and Attack Trek were written by were written by Rob Zadibble. Look Ahead was written by Bob Johnson. Load and Go was written by Brad Stewart. Brad Stewart, if you remember, was the guy who did Breakout. The most popular game by far, created by an internal Atari programmer for APX, however, was Eastern Front by Chris Crawford, released in September 1981. Eastern Front was a tactical war game that simulated the battle between Germans and Russians in World War II. Unlike most other tactical games at the time, Eastern Front included colorful graphics and joystick input that completely streamlined the interface for a war game. Even though Eastern Front did not include animated battles, compared to the text-based games from Avalon Hill, it was a cinematic masterpiece. It played well too. This is what Creative Computing had to say about the game. I have no hesitation in calling this one of the very best war games available for a personal computer. It is also a virtuoso demonstration of the awesome built-in capabilities of the Atari computer. So, see all those guys who thought the Atari wasn't a computer were wrong. Atari, right at this point, with both Eastern Front and Star Raiders, had covered two very different markets of enthusiasts. They had the yes. video gamers and the Star Trek fans, and they had the war gamers. If they could have somehow really grasped onto that and sold up millions of computers to those people, they could have, but they just, I don't know, they didn't want to sell a games computer. Yeah. They, I, they just weren't, they just were like, it was almost like they were holding off because they didn't want to to cannibalize the VCS, which is just wrong. Games like these, Chris Crawford seemed to be on an almost singular quest as an Atari insider to simultaneously tell the world about the capabilities of the 8-bit computers and show just what magic he could weave with them. The game also sold well, even with the paltry 10% royalty rate. Actually, that was not very, that's actually pretty good. Crawford made $90,000 from the game. 
but by the way there's so much more about chris crawford i have an entire episode that i've been developing for about three years about chris crawford i just haven't been able to get it done yet anyway games and applications began streaming in immediately from outside sources well one of the best was caverns of mars finally i got to the subject of this <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It was Caverns of Mars, created by Greg Christensen, a high school senior. He submitted to APX, and after, it sold remarkably well. And this is Phil Gerson in Electronic Fun Magazine, wrote this. Caverns of Mars is an exciting, fast-moving adventure game for the Atari 400-800 home computer. For now, it is available only as a computer disc program. The game plot is simple. The player must maneuver his one-man fighter down into the depths of Mars, activate the timer of a fusion bomb, and escape before the bomb goes off. And again, that's Phil Gershon from Electronic Fun. The game was a vertically scrolling multi-level shooter that took the player deep into the surface of Mars, battling aliens until they reached the center of the planet. Much like Star Raiders, it set the tone for the abilities of the Atari 8-bit computer when it came to games and entertainment. Christensen's game won a $3,000 prize from Atari, and his first royalty check was $18,000. He, he would go on to receive over $100,000 in royalties from the game. In 1982, Atari converted it to its regular lineup of games for the computer line. Christensen went on to a healthy career making computer games, including two sequels to Caverns of Mars, Phobos, and Caverns of Mars 2. By the way, I didn't know that. I didn't remember that he made sequels to Caverns both, of Mars. That's Phobos really cool. Caverns of Mars 2 are kind of some of the both like Scramble, a little bit like Scramble. I think they're That's both. really cool. I will... Um, we will check. I, I I forgot we didn't see when most of the almost every APX game is a cassette or disc to get right. something converted to a cartridge was a big deal yeah, and up. Eastern Front I think got converted to a cartridge as well both Eastern Front and Caverns of Mars are two of the pretty easy to find brown and yellow cartridges there were hundreds of thousands of those cartridges made it for good reason yeah um, <laughs> they're great. <laughs> So the other game that we played at Kenny's and the one that really made us like computer game freaks was Minor 2049er. Yes. And um, Minor 2049er was released for the Atari 400-800 computers in 1982 by Big Five Software. It was created by Bill Hogue, who was actually ran Big Five Software himself and was ported to many platforms, including according to Wikipedia, the Apple II, the Atari 2600, Atari 5200, the Big 20, Commodore 64, ColecoVision, Fujitsu FM7, Intellivision, the NEC PC8801, the IBM PC, the Sharp X1, the Thompson MOS5 or MO5, the TI-994A, and the Sony SMC777. That's quite a but, lot of computers. Also, you, on the next page, oh, Super Cassette Vision. Super, <laughs> super Cassette Vision. According to the Big Five software site, the Atari 400-800 cartridge was Big Five's first color video game. Yeah, I think Bill made a bunch of TRS-80 games before oh, this. I got that. I got that. Was their first color video game a full 16K cartridge with most of the cartridges at the time for the Atari computers were 8K games. According to Electronic Games Magazine, the phenomenon, and make no mistake about it, Miner's publication is perhaps the most significant software event of the year, 1982. Starts from the fact it is a super duper program, not just good. Miner shines with the aura of true greatness. That was from Electronic Games Magazine. In yeah, they're right. In analog issue number nine, Tom Hudson reviewed Miner and had this to say. Miner Tool for Niner is one of those rare games that looks as if it was designed not just thrown together. 
Minor249er is a must play for the Atari 400-800 computers. Okay, so Bill Hogue, in an interview way back when, there's new interviews with Bill Hogue um, on the Antic podcast, and I will send people to a link there, but I didn't go there. I went all the way back to an interview he did in Electronic Games Magazine. He said, I never thought it was going to be a hit. You start out programming a game, and you never plan the whole thing out. The Fall Guy was my favorite TV show at the time. We started doing it with one guy trying to catch another guy. But it turned out to be a little too much like Donkey Kong. So instead of trying to get to the top, the idea was then modified. So when the modification was that it's kind of like Pac-Man, you have to touch every piece of the girders on the way up. I think you're, you're picking up gold or picking up treasure or something. Bill Hogue started out making games for the TRS-80 as a 17-year-old, working at a Radio Shack store in Los Angeles. He even demonstrated a game of his to David Hartman on ABC's Good Morning America. I actually remember seeing that. It was on a TRS-80. We weren't that impressed at the time because it was a TRS-80 black and white on a TRS-80. I'm sure it was really hard to do, though. Uh, but we, then again, we were we were dummies who didn't know how to program, and this guy was making a game and selling it. So Exactly. By Bill's third semester in college, he had a nice handful of TRS-80 games released, but he felt that the system was too limited to create games, so he settled on the color graphics of an Atari 800. Well, it's a really cool game, and it really was, I mean, if you think about it, a combination of, of Donkey Kong and Pac-Man, the two, like, most popular games in about 1981 to 1982 yeah. i mean you couldn't have asked for a better game and then when you play it it's got 10 levels yeah. and the levels are so varied and this is one of the reasons why you looked at the computer and you're like oh my god the games on a computer can be so much more in depth than anything even the in the arcade 10 you know, levels anything. and we had just got the donkey kong cartridge which had two right yeah yeah it had the two levels oh, the 2600 for the 2600 and, and you know again nothing wrong with that it's no, just no, it's, it's just, just that, that we, we wanted more <laughs> we, yeah we wanted more we, we saw the depth of computer games and this was like a big part of it the ColecoVision version didn't mention this anywhere but i think the ColecoVision version has 25 levels because they could have because the cartridges weren't limited to 16k they were they were bigger so i'm gonna i'm gonna look that up right look now it up right now i think yeah. there were 25 i know of that that the version of Gateway to AppShy had more levels than the nine levels on the Atari 100 version because those cartridges could only be 16K of contiguous memory. The Atari 5200 had 32K of contiguous memory that you could shove data into. You had to bank switch an Atari 800 cartridge to get 32K in, and that's why it was more difficult to do it. I learned that on Zero Page Homebrew today. From oh, you did? Who, yeah, from the guy who made Adventure uh, Adventure 2. Um, I was listening to Zero Page Homebrew today, watching their, their video about and the interview with the guy who made Adventure 2. We talked about the differences between the cartridge sizes. Anyway, go on, Steve. I'm, I'm just look, looking it up. I'm looking at the ClickaVision version to see what it says anything. It, it seems like it probably had more levels. I think you're right. So those are the three magical games that were our launch titles for the Atari 800. Um, yeah, yeah, I know but, that that for but, that was what we saw, and, and, and you know that was so. First, we just saw the game in the HW computers, and then we the, what we played though was amazing, and then what we programmed was even more amazing because Kenny had had a cassette drive, right, and we typed in the games to the magazines, but we couldn't save them. So once it was typed in, we had to play it as much as we could before he turned off his computer. Exactly, <laughs> you remember that. I do remember that. He did eventually save his games to the cassette and we could play them again. 
Yeah, but I think the first time we didn't save it. I wonder what game it was. I want to say it was Money Bags, but I don't know exactly what it was. We did two or three games over the course of the time we went over to his house. And he probably did save one of them at least. I remember the first one did not get saved. So, Steve, that was our introduction to the Atari 400 computer. It was a big basis for us wanting to get an Atari computer or any computer room, but really the Atari computer was what we wanted. Yeah, and what I really want to do is play Dungeons & Dragons on a computer, which came much later. Well, not Dungeons & Dragons. I guess it was Ultima was really the first time I really felt like I was playing a role-playing game. I think the first time, but when we got all those games, the first game that we like played a lot, Santa was Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. It's not a role-playing game, but it was an action-adventure game. It was really cool. Um, yeah, it was and really then of cool. course, eventually we would do the text adventures because those were like an adventure, but they weren't role playing. We didn't really get that element yet. I mean, we got it, yeah. but we didn't have a, any software to, to play that yet. Um, no. Right away, right when we got the 800, but it was coming. No, I think it, well, again, it wasn't until really. I mean, I think there was alternate reality, the city, um, but I think the real role playing game came when we um, when we got Ultima because I think most of the role playing games we played that felt like Dungeons and Dragons. I think I think when we played Fantasy on the Atari ST the first time, like that really did, and then Wizard's Crown as well. Yeah. Those SSI ones. I think yeah, uh, um, we'll get to those. But yeah, I mean yeah, we about, will get talk, to those. Talking about um, the combination of Dungeons and Dragons and the Atari four hundred. In that you're right. Ultima 4, a game, uh, Quest of the Avatar, a game that you played inside now four months. And then yes. um, we also got it on the Atari ST also. We'll get there at some point. That sitting down and playing Fantasy 1 and 2 for, I think we, whatever it was, for an entire week or something we had off or it, it, during school, it was during college or something like that. It was like, oh my God, what is this game? And It was amazing. Wait, I have a question for you. Temple of Abshai Trilogy. Did we get that on the 400, 800, or did we get it on the ST? We had, so the, the trilogy wasn't, I don't think it was released on the 400 at the time. We got the trilogy on the ST, but but I have like dates. So I have a couple of those games that require the so, original game. Temple of Abshai is the first game that felt like playing a and d game. Right. Tem- the original Temple of Abshai. That, that is the first one. And it's really almost a roguelike at, at its case, but I don't think it's, it's, um, is procedurally generated dungeons? Uh, no, it's not. not. No, because because you had to. Every room had a description. Right. So you would you'd have to go to the instruction manual and read the description of each room that you went went into, so you could um so every time you went in to give the color, just like a dungeon master would do when playing Dungeons and Dragons. But the first great roguelike was. Rogue by Epics on the Atari on the ST. <laughs> well, I mean, Rogue, the first great ST roguelike. Well, but the, even even the people that talk about Rogue now, they don't even know it's the Atari ST tile sheet, but they pass it around as this cool Rogue tile. Oh, sheet. really? I didn't Atari know that. Atari ST sixteen color tile sheet. Yeah. Oh, um, that's cool. Anyway, so uh, I guess that's the end of this episode for this time, Steve. I guess um, so. Yeah. Little more, um, little more upbeat um, than last time. And um, sure. some exciting topics that were, uh, you know, that Atari 400 uh, and the Atari, these Atari games and Dungeons and Dragons, all these things just fit right in the vertical plane. They are, That's right. There's a topic that excites me to talk about. Right in the vertical plane. Until next time, Jeff. Into the into vertical plane, Steve. Into the vertical plane. Into the vertical plane. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff again. Thank you for listening to this episode.
We want to encourage you to interact with us on Twitter on the twitter.com slash Atari underscore VB underscore pod or directly to one of us at FultonBot for Steve and at 8BitRocket for me. We also have a YouTube channel where we put up videos all the time. That is YouTube. The channel is Into the Vertical Blank and we're constantly updating our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Into the Vertical Blank. Thanks. Until next time, Into the Vertical Blank. Data, v blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.